you have your Bibles this evening, and I hope that you do, I hope that you'll find two places with us as we're going through the book of Matthew on Sunday nights, and we're just about done. And uh, so we'll not only be starting a new book on Wednesday nights, we're quickly going to be starting a new book on Sunday nights, and then we're quickly running to the end of 2 Samuel, so we will be changing gears in all of these very quickly. But also, if you would, turn over to Revelation, the 19th chapter. Today I want to talk to you about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, Where we are at in chapter 27 is uh, Jesus is standing before the governor. Uh, He is going to be rejected by his own people, and he is literally going to be humiliated because of his great love for sinners. And uh, as we are getting ready to start the book of Revelation, I'll just be very honest about my views on the book of Revelation because it's going to tie in tonight. I believe in a literal, historical uh, viewing of the book of Revelation. And so when you read the book of Revelation, it is unfolding as it will unfold. And so chapter 1 was the things that uh, John had saw or was seeing. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 are what is happening with the churches. And then in the beginning of chapter 4, when the rapture happens from chapters 4... All the way in is prophecy. It is the future. And it unfolds as it says that it will. And so when we get to chapter 19 and the church has gone to heaven and all that has gone on, the Lord returns. And uh, you can read that in Revelation chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 14 through 16. And we're going to read that in just a second. Uh, And then, as we see, I believe, in a a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, contrary to many people. Uh, But I believe it is historical, literal, in the order that it is supposed to be. You can find 30 to 40 prophecies in the Old Testament about it, and so I see no problem believing what the Word of God says. And um, and so we will reign with Him for a 1,000-year period. Uh, Then the rebellion of Satan, it is crushed, and the great white throne Judgment, And so what we see in chapters 19 and 20 of the book of Revelation is Jesus as King of kings, Lord of lords, destroying His enemies, setting up His kingdom, just making everything right. But when we come to chapter 27, we see a whole different version of Him. We see the suffering servant. We see the one who is coming to die the one who it is better to serve than to be served. But tonight I want to show you that the Jesus that we worship is not just one who died for us. He is one who will rule over everything. And this idea that we just serve a carpenter is not true. While he is a carpenter, while he is humble, when he returns again, he is not coming as a simple, humble Carpenter, He is coming with all the authority and rights that he has always had. And that is how he is going to treat his enemies. That's how he is going to uplift his saints. And so tonight as we look at these two different pictures of Jesus and his personification of who he is, it is a good reminder for us. Because the world tells us that there is no power. If you look around in most churches, there is no power. They're cold and they're dead and they go through the motions. And friends, I believe that is because we have a very little view of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. 
and how He can change lives and how He can set people free and how He can save sinners and how He can deliver the addicted. And only if we return to believing who Jesus is is in an entirety will we truly be able to follow and trust Him. And so if you would with me, out of a reverence to the reading of God's Word, starting in Revelations chapter 19 in verses 14 through 16, I would like to read what we see when Jesus comes again. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 19, the Bible says these words. It says, excuse me, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. Now out of His mouth goes a sharp sword, that is, with He should strike the nations. And He Himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He Himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And He has on His robe and on His thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Pray with me. Father, tonight we thank You that, Lord, we are so thankful for Your humility and Your death and your suffering on the cross for us. But Lord, never allow us to forget, Lord, that you truly are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the great I am. Lord, you are the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, you are all-powerful. Help us tonight, Lord, learn to trust you as we face difficulty in the world, challenges in our families. Lord, a general sense of defeat in the church today. That, Lord, we would believe you and trust you And Lord, I know this first day of the year, Lord, I pray that this group here on Sunday night, Lord, the backbone and core of this church would be encouraged to stand up, to labor, to fight for your glory in all that we say and do. And so, Lord, I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you found Matthew chapter 27, uh, we're looking at Jesus now before Pilate. And if you're taking notes tonight, we would see that the king is silent before his accusers. And tonight I want to show you that everything happened exactly like the Bible said that it would so that you could believe what the Bible says. Because if you can believe what the Bible said about Jesus' first coming, then you can believe what the Bible says about His second coming. And so when you read about Him ruling with a rod of iron, by crushing His enemies, by setting up His throne, by ruling and reigning victoriously, if it all happened like it said the first time, I can live in a state of victory knowing that it is going to happen exactly the same way the second time. And so when it says here in verses 1 through 4, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked Him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priest and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, most of us have watched a television show about law. We've watched a a courtroom setting. Some of us who were more wild in our younger days maybe stood before a judge at some point in our life. But if you've ever watched a criminal court in some kind of a show, whether it was Judge Judy or not, 
one party makes an accusation, and if the other party feels that it is out of line, or crosses a line, or is not true, the lawyer makes a statement, I object, it is your way of saying, that's not true, I have a problem with that, I am not okay with it. But yet what we see here is Jesus is being falsely accused. He's being slandered. He's being accused of blasphemy. He is being accused of rebelling against the Roman government. He is being accused of wanting to overthrow and to set up a new kingdom. But yet He answers not. We see here even from the governor that this was marvelous. It was, it was cha- strange. person doesn't fight for their innocence. What innocent person doesn't say? They're liars. They are no good, dirty, rotten liars. But yet what you and I forget is the Old Testament said that that's exactly what he would do. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. You see, everything about Jesus, the way He lived, the way He served, the way He was arrested, the way He stood before the governor, was all given in precise details so that when you and I look at this from a worldly standpoint, we can say, that makes no sense. Why would an innocent person not defend himself? Why would an innocent person not try to right these wrongs? Because God wants you to see the sacrifice and the plan and the purpose that Jesus has to save you and I from our sins. The fact that He had all of this planned out and worked down to every minute detail so that you could believe, that you could trust the Word of God. And why does this matter? It matters for your salvation. You must believe the Word of God. We believe here at this church that from the very first word in the book of Genesis to the very last word in the book of Revelation that the Bible is God's word. It is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible. That means there are no mistakes, there are no contradiction. And if you have a problem with it, the problem is always you. If you don't like that, you're looking for that in a church, this is not for you. Why? Because the word of God is the only constant in life. It is the living Word. The Bible says that it never returns void, that the grass may wither and the flower fadeth, but the Word of the Lord endureth forever. And so when I read that Jesus wasn't going to defend Himself, wasn't going to argue, and yet I read here in Matthew 27, but He answered Him, not one word. What it gives me is the confidence to believe God to know that God is true, that God is trustworthy, that the Word of God is truly inerrant and infallible. Psalms 42 verse 2 says the same thing. He will not cry out, nor raise His voice, nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. You see, verse after verse supports who Jesus is. And you say, Jake, what does that matter? It matters when your loved one is getting ready to leave this world and a whole world tells you that there is no 
life after death. That you came from slime. That you evolved into a monkey. That you evolved into somewhat of a human. And knowing how some people vote, I'm thinking some of them are still monkeys. And, uh, but, uh, but you have no value, no worth, no creative special uniqueness. And so you just need to live your best life now. Get what you can get. Hoard what you can hoard. Enjoy what you can enjoy. But yet when it comes your time, there you go. But yet we can stand beside the the bed of a dying loved one and say, this breaks my heart, but I will see you again. And it's not because I created a place called heaven. It's because Jesus said in His Word, that I go to prepare a place for you. And so everything I believe is not based on what I want or what I would like. It is based on the fact that God tells me there is a place created for those who love Him and I will be with Him forever and ever. Amen. That's what I base my life on. I base my life on the simple premise that if I will teach my children the Word of God, I will live the Christian example that God's Word tells me to. That I will give them a foundation that they might grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I get a real kick out of this and it breaks my heart at the same time. Family's my age, alright? If you're my age and you say this, I'm not going to apologize. I just want my kids to love Jesus. I just want my kids to follow Jesus. I just want my kids to learn a commitment to serve Jesus and, and to follow Him in every way. Hey, Pastor, we're going to be gone all of May, June, July, and August because we got other stuff going on. And in my mind, I want to say, do you know how stupid that sounds? Jesus died for the church. This group of people who know Him and follow Him and love Him and serve Him, and it is vital for your children to be in the house of the Lord. Not just in church, but in Sunday school, serving, working, giving. They need to be here so they know that the Sanctity of Life Sunday is in January so they can believe that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. They need to be here in December on Christmas when they can see the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, that there are people all over the world that are lost and on their way to hell, and we care about it. And we care about them. They need to be here so they can go to camp and hear and watch what God does in the lives of other people. They even need to be drugged to revival. That's cra- it's crazy. I told you you would like it. I don't care. Why? Because God anoints a man with a message that's not from me, it's not from him, it's from God, and it's for us, the church, that needs to be revived and encouraged. You say, but it's a long sermon. They'll get something out of it. Maybe it's just to appreciate the short sermons they hear on a weekly basis. I don't know. But they will learn something. I promise you because the Bible makes that promise. The Word of God never returns void. You put them in Sunday school, they'll learn something. You put them in church on Sunday night, they'll learn something. You drag them to church on Wednesday night, they'll learn something. Now it might be what God uses to reveal that they're not really saved. Jesus said, I will either be your Savior or I will be your stumbling block. And what we need are people to be confronted, for people to truly make a decision that costs serving Jesus costs me something. Serving and following Jesus is not just a cultural addition. It is a life-changing experience. 
Second thing I want to show you tonight, you got half that for free. So, by the way, the king rejected by his own people. We see the king silent before his accusers and the king rejected by his own people. Starting in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitudes one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Even Pilate knew that this was a group of jealous, power-hungry old men. And that Jesus had not done what they said he did. While he was seating on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a... I messed this word up this morning, and I'm going to mess it up again tonight. Someone pronounce that word for me. There you go, you got it. Was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this person you see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us. Don't miss these next words. And on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The Jewish people who were God's chosen people. You can read an entire Old Testament and look at the promises and the relationship and the blessings that this group of people had with God. But yet, the Bible is full of examples that they would reject Him. In John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. In John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus speaking, I have come in My Father's name, and you did not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. In John chapter 12, verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus says, if you reject me, this will be your judgment. That's why we believe that the rejection of the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ will condemn you to an eternity away from God. I think it's interesting because if you flip back to the book of Revelation with me, chapter 19 and 20, we go from seeing Pilate sitting on a throne. We go from the people rejecting him to the fact that in chapter 20 we see in verses 4, 
Jesus and the saints are ruling. They are reigning. In verse 7, Satan and his rebellion are crushed. And in verse 11, how the tides have turned. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, verse 11, it's not on the board, that's why you should bring your Bible to church. I like to throw that in there once in a while. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, when we read the story of the crucifixion, He is the one standing in judgment. But friends, there is coming a day when He will judge, when He will make the final decision. And it will not be a chance for people to beg for mercy. It will not be a chance for people to have another opportunity. It will be an account of what you have done with Jesus. And when we read Matthew chapter 27 here, they are testifying of their own guilt. They literally said, His blood is on us. I think it's fitting when you read that because as the old song says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As believers, the covering of the blood, when we look at the Old Testament story of the sacrifice of the animal, putting it over the doorpost, they are covered by the blood. That blood gives them Safety, security. As believers, we talk about being covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It covers us from all of our sin. His blood that was shed for us. But these people use it in exactly the opposite. Give His blood to our account. And friend, it is a picture of salvation. Jesus is either your Savior, or friends, He is the one who will condemn you to an eternity away from Him. His death, burial, and resurrection will be the event that saves you, changes you, cleanses you, or it will be the event that condemns you. It will be, I'm either covered by His blood or His death is upon me. My sin, my shame, my rejection of Him. The third and final thing that I have tonight, hopefully I'll get you out with two short sermons in one day, is this simple thing. The king humiliated because of his great love for sinners. The king humiliated because of his great love for sinners. In chapter 27, in verse 27, it says, And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and 
took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put on his own clothes, and led him away to be crucified. The book of Isaiah tells us that this happens in Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. It's talking about Jesus. I gave my back. They didn't force it. They didn't take it. He freely offered it. He freely offered and allowed them to spit upon Him, to pluck out His beard, to drive the crown of thorns into His head, to take the reed or the makeshift scepter and strike Him repeatedly. He did not hide His face from shame and spitting. But oh, when I flip over to the book of Revelation, and I look there in verse 19, in chapter 19, excuse me, there ain't no scarlet robe. It's there as there is a robe of white. When I read there in chapter 19 in verse 16, it doesn't say a reed, some flimsy thing that would have been used to mock him. It is a rod of iron. When I see that he is stripped naked in shame and humility, it says that he is treading the winepress, that he is bringing the wrath of Almighty God. His robes are written no longer in bloodstained shame and sweat and tears and all that would have came from that. We forget sometimes, I think, that Jesus wouldn't have not just been able to stand there and take it. Right? As if you're struck and punched, and I hope that you've never been, you've been jumped on by a group of people, but you usually don't stand up. So I want you to think about this robe that they would have put on him. It would have been covered in dirt. It would have been covered in spit. It would have been covered in blood. He would have been covered in, in a blood-soaked body with, with mud and pain and, and all the things that would have came for this in this utter state of humility. And then he was naked. I don't know about you, but there is no situation in this world that I even want to see myself naked, let alone someone else see me naked, all right? That's, I don't want to go to a beach. I'm not going to wear shorts. I'm good how I am, all right? But yet all of these people are watching him. These guards are mocking him. But yet he gave himself for this. But friends, when you flip over to the 19th chapter of Revelation with me, it says he was clothed with a road dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And I want to read you this quotation from John MacArthur. I think it is very good. This is not from the Battle of Armageddon, which will not have begun until verse 15. Christ's blood-scattered garments symbolize the great battles He has already fought against sin, Satan, and death, and has been stained with the blood of His enemies. Only John uses this title, the Word. As the Word of God, Jesus is the Im image of the invisible God, the express image of His person, and the final full revelation of God. You see, Jesus comes not as a beaten servant 
but a conquering king. When you look in the book of Revelation chapter 21 and you see a new heaven and a new earth, when you look at all these wonderful things that happen about the tears will be wiped away and there will be no more death and no more sorrow and no more pain. When you read in chapter 21 about the new Jerusalem and the glory and the river of life and all of these things, remember something. It was all made possible because of the purpose and plan of God. And that Jesus was willing to suffer this time, but next time He comes victorious. And you say, Jake, why do these two matter? Because if the Word of God didn't get it right the first time, it won't get it right the second time. But if it got it first right, it gets it right the second time. But I want to close with this because sometimes we can get very much tilted one way or the other. But in Luke chapter 19, there's a young man by the name of Zacchaeus. We don't know how old he was for sure, but we know that he was a wee little man is what the song says. But it's verse 5 of chapter 9, the Bible says these words, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. I say that tonight, and you say, well, Jake, it's a Sunday night crowd. Most people here are saved. I have learned a long time ago that I don't care how big a crowd is, almost always there is someone that's lost. And tonight I want to say this, that Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. He came to seek and save that which was lost. But there will come a day when the mercy and grace of God will stop. And the Sunday night sermons where the preacher is inviting you to be saved. The televangelist is inviting you to be saved. The revival preacher is inviting you to be saved. The Spirit of God is convicting you to be saved. There is coming a day when all of that will stop. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And my plea to you tonight, church, is this. If you are here and you are lost... You might be a member on our rolls, but you're not a member in His book. It says the book of life, your name must be written in it. And I believe with all my heart that hell will be full of Baptist church members. Friends, it does not have to be you. And so tonight I want to invite you to repent of your sins and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But church, I want to invite you, those that are saved, truly know they belong into the family of God, to remember that God is powerful, that God is authority, that God is going to rule and reign. But while we wait for that day to come, we are to be working. We're not to be lazy. We're not to be quitting. We're not to be going halfway. 
We are to go with the glorious gospel of Jesus to the ends of the world, to the family that lives with you, to the people that you work with, to the grandchildren that you have, that Jesus saves. And that if we will present the gospel, not all will be saved, but we know that God is going to save some and that He is building His church. And I don't know about you, but I love to see people saved. I appreciate the three of you that agree with that. I'm going to say that one more time because that amen means in agreement. And, I, you know, we can either do something different for a living if that's the case. I enjoy seeing people saved. Amen. Thank you for the 12 of you. But friends, that's why we're here. To glorify Jesus. To be equipped to be the church of Jesus. And to take the message of Jesus to a lost and dying world that has no hope. Listen, I know how I vote. I have no problem outside of this pulpit telling you how I vote. I think most of you had a pretty good idea how I vote. But that ain't the answer. I mean, I think it's an answer to a lot of the problems, but it ain't the answer. I don't know if you know this or not, but I spend a lot of time in hospitals and nursing homes and people that are ending their lives here. And everybody talks about heaven. But it doesn't take you very long to talk to people that know that most of them have no idea how to get there. And the good McLeansboro, Hamilton County thing to do is don't offend them. They're good people. They went to church somewhere. You know, they were baptized at eight years old. Just don't, don't rock the boat. I can tell you it is not a pleasant experience when you try to talk to someone on their deathbed that's been in church their whole life that has told you that they are not saved, that they are a church member and they're just hoping to get there and their whole family is sitting around you going, you don't need to talk to him about that. He's fine. No, he's not. But friends, we have to have those conversations. We have to have real conversations with people. The church will not get you there. It is only a relationship with Jesus. And so tonight I hope that you will be encouraged to know that it is going to work out in the end and that we should work while we wait. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, while there is so much more that we could say and that I would like to say, Lord, I just, I just pray, Lord, that we would see the significance of your death, but Lord, also the significance of your victory. And Lord, tonight I pray that you would help this congregation. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in these people. Lord, starting with me, Lord, begin to stir up a fire and a passion and a desire, Lord, to serve you and to live for you and to honor you, Lord, and to, to want to watch you change lives. Father, I pray tonight for that man, woman, boy, or girl that's lost, that does not know you. And tonight, Lord, under conviction, realize it. Lord, I cannot preach them into convicting. Only you can draw them. Only you can deal with them. And tonight, Lord, I pray that is the case. Father, for the believer that's living in sin, that's hiding their sin, that's covering it, God, tonight I pray that your Holy Spirit would begin to work in them and deal with them. Lord, start with me and my wife and my family. And Lord, change us for your glory. But Lord, I pray for this church, this group of believers who are yours, Lord, that you would give us a passion to work while we wait.
that, God, our days are numbered, our time is limited. And, Lord, help us to be faithful while you leave us here, all for your glory. And so, Lord, I again ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.